Praise be to God. And now we know why we broke Romans 9 into two weeks. Even then, it's still a mouthful. And there's so much there. So let us pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word that guides us, that brings life to us, that that life is not found in the word, but in the word that became flesh, dwelt among us, died in our place, was buried and rose again to declare victory over death, promising us new life to behold your glory and your riches. We thank you for your mercy that's new. We pray for your spirit to understand, give understanding to us and wisdom. May we fear you all of our days in Jesus' name. Amen. As we open Romans 9, we see this theme of choosing again, which as a kid, it was awesome every time I got to skateboard or ride downtown Tascadero in all of its wondrous glory and amazing quickie marts that lined El Camino, and I could bring a bunch of change. And then I had, to my heart's delight slash dismay, the overwhelming choice. What candy bar would I choose? Which one would would satisfy my hunger and my desire for sugar? And was it peanuts? Not really, but caramel's good, so maybe a Snickers bar. And then I was always like, ah, Butterfinger's the best, but I need it frozen. I can't just have a hot Butterfinger melting everywhere. That's That's just not... So just back and forth, and, and then my friend would make a decision, and he was like, come on, hurry up, Brandon, and I'm like, ah, and I like, grabbed like Pop Rocks, and we go to, I'm like, what have I done? This is a horrible decision. Why did I do that? And then, uh, you know, on and on, and, and the interesting thing is I did, I'm like, choice, this is crazy, we're talking about God's choice and how frustrating it is. No wonder we're frustrated that God gets to choose, because we don't even know what we're doing when we have choices. Psychology says we have about 35,000 choices that we make. And you made one today. You got up, got dressed, got here. That's one of 35,000 crazy choices subconsciously, consciously you're going to make. And if you've ever tried to sit down, maybe watch a family movie or a movie, and you're like, I don't even know. ah," And you kind of go to your favorites and your chosen ones you like, and then the ones you're trying, a new one maybe. And then you watch something, you're like, this is a horrible decision. That's what psychology tells us. Even when you make a decision, you're not satisfied. It's like, okay, good. I'm not the only one. Because I just feel like looking around, everyone makes these choices and everyone smiles like, this is awesome. But inside we're all like, this is a horrible decision. What have we done? And it's interesting when we talk about all these choices we make. The one who chose us. We we try and figure it out and understand it. and, And Paul's trying to get the church unified on Jesus and the gospel. He's trying to help them understand, look at God who made you, chose you, he elected you, he predestined this. And here's the thing, Israel, God gets to be sovereign, he gets to choose. And then we're going to talk about the end, he starts to introduce what we'll talk more about next week. Hey, you're still responsible. But I thought he gets to choose. How am I responsible if he chooses? And that's the, that's the mystery there. The wonderful mystery that his choice, we see in... in played out with these three themes. One, the perfecting, verses 19 through 24. Second, the prophecy. And third, the person, which is Christ. So first we see that this perfecting work, that God's the perfect one, and he gets to choose, and he gets to explain the interaction, which if you've been around kids or had your own, you know that they don't need any help figuring out what is fair. Right? They know right away. It's not fair. Like, how did you know to say that? Like, where, who did, did grandma talk to you about this? Because I didn't talk to you about 
how fair works. And I'll never forget my youngest daughter, we were explaining how Mother's Day is coming up and at church we always give moms chocolates and she looked at me like, this is the worst thing. How come I don't get chocolates? Like, that's not fair. Moms just get chocolates? Like, well, moms have done a little bit more for you than you have probably not said thank you at all in your three or four years of life. Like, this is not, like, but I agree. Like, I should get some chocolates too. How come dads don't get chocolates, you know? And, and so it's like, that's not fair. Maybe you came in this morning thinking, man, this isn't fair. Church should be earlier or later or, you know, this thing happened or the car broke down or I don't know where you're at. Maybe that's a thought that's come in this past week. In, in research, I found this, this uh, interaction to be funny because I've been around similar ones where a phone call comes and they're looking for a priest and the pastor picks up and he said, I'm not a priest but I'm a pastor and I, I could go to this hospital visit though. And he goes to the hospital visit and, and he walks in and, and this older gentleman's there in the hospital bed and he's like, this is, I don't know what God has done. Why would God do this? And, and the pastor's like, Why, what, what's up? And he's like, man, I've lived a perfect life. I've done nothing but good. And here I am in the hospital. Why would God do this to me? And he's like, okay, well, how old are you? And the, and the man says, well, I'm 92 years old. And he's like, oh, okay, well, how, how long are you going to be in hosp the hospital? And he's like, 10 days. Can you believe it? They're going to keep me locked in here for 10 days. And the pastor's like, all right, well, most guys would give their arm and leg to be weighted on hand and foot by all these pretty women running around. I don't know. What, what do you want? Like 10 days, you're out of here. What's the big deal? And maybe it's more severe. Maybe you're saying, why would God take my child? Why would God allow my marriage to crumble? Why would God take this job from me and the economic security of, of a paycheck? Why would God do this or do that? Why would God have this choice? And why would God, look at the global spectrum, why would God allow terrorism and all these insanely gruesome and inhumane ha acts to happen? And we think about every day, we can look at all the negative and look at all the, ne the, the challenge of God's choosing, but we can also look at the positive, the mercies of God. When we think about mercies, I don't tend, I, I take that for granted. I don't, I don't sit and, and ponder at the depth of, I didn't choose you. You say I can't lose your love that we talked about in Romans 8. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet I, I, I really don't appreciate God's mercy. I don't sit there and, and let it soak in and just Man, I am so grateful, especially because God's mercies are new every morning. I'm just like, yeah, cool. I messed up today. It was a train wreck. What, I hurt people. People hurt. It was a mess, but don't worry. Tomorrow's. And I just kind of assume, like, hey, we get a reset tomorrow. Like, growing up in the video game generation, that's just kind of ingrained, hardwired. And, hey, no big deal. We lost 30 times. Tomorrow's a reset. And other people don't, I don't I think, have that mindset. And, and it is. I, I take it lightly. I don't sit and go, wow, that... That cost God his son to give me a reset. That's significant that God would choose. In Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, every morning do we wake up and thank God, wow, your, your mercies are new for me today. I ruined everything yesterday, but you're shining, your face is shining on me as your son or your daughter because I believe in your son. I'm standing in this righteous place, not by anything I've done, but by only what your son accomplished on the cross. See, righteousness is not a works-based thing. It's not, it's not a scorecard. You know, you're potty training your kids or, or you're, you know, you're giving them treats and, or dog. It's, it's not a scorecard on, hey, let's, how's your grades? Can you go party with your friends this weekend? Nope, you got to see, which for me, I would have never partied. So thankfully it was more, hey, you tried hard. Good job, son. 
Like, yeah, okay, school, whatever. Um, thankfully, they, I got to teachers that actually told me what we're going to study for a test, which helped me a lot. Other people were smart enough to listen, I guess, and absorb stuff, just osmosis. But when you think about our, our choosing and what we deserve, maybe there's horrible things that have been done to you. It's not, it's not that you can achieve things on your own merit or your own God-given abilities, but it's, it's, it's horrible things that have been done to you. And you think, man, I, God must really hate me because he allowed this abuse or, or he allowed these things that, that have hurt me so so deeply and so severely, and God must not love me. He's already cast me off. But it's interesting here because we see in both of those situations, Paul's arguing in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? His perfecting, his work, God's the one who gets to choose and then he's saying, okay, you're going to say, why does he still find fault? If God's choosing, then how am I held responsible? He introduces this idea in verse 20. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He's like, hold up, time out, which he reflects kind of God's response to Job. Oh, really, Job, we're going to have a conversation about some big things? Where were you when I laid the foundations? Were you holding the string or were you doing the forms? Where were you? Oh, that's right, you weren't doing none of that. You weren't even born. I'm God, I get to do what God does. And that's me choosing, and you get to experience my mercy towards you. So, and he goes on with this idea, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? At Hume Lake, we always have these memory verses, and as, as kids, um, not only was, was I competitive, so you, you memorized scripture, but you got points for it, and those were the most valuable points, like rec points are good, winning at Kajabi um, was good, so we were pretty strategic at that, but the memory verses were huge, and I remember one year in particular, we had this verse as a memory verse, and it was funny because in the cabin, we, my friend would joke about that part. Like, why do you make me like this? And that turned into this joke. It was kind of one of those things. You had to be there because no one's laughing right now. But in my mind, it's always hilarious as a high schooler, which obviously you had to be there, high school boy joke. But it was also interesting looking back and going, man, all those guys just were living for the world. And they were made for like their, their hunger and thirst for the world, not for God and yet we were memorizing the same verse. And for me, it just always bothered me. Like, dude, that's kind of a jerk thing. You get to be the, the molder and we're just the clay. Like, whatever you want to do. And I was always bummed. Like, man, all these buddies, could. there's so much smarter, stronger, better, all this stuff. And they just want to live for themselves and not for God's glory. Like, what are you doing, God? You're the, you're the potter. You get to choose. And reading this now, it's like, oh... You love them so much to give them every opportunity, every exposure that I got. And as the, as the molder, you kept working, kept working with the clay. As the potter kept potting, kept trying on the wheel, and it just wouldn't, it wouldn't run up in your hands. And, and Paul's not making this up. So often when we read the New Testament, we think Paul's just like, you know what would be an awesome visual illustration for Brandon in 2024? I'm going to throw this like potter idea out and it'll be clay and he can walk it around and talk about. No, he's going, hey, you know what? God told Jeremiah the prophet to go to the potter's house. God said, hey, Jeremiah, go to the potter's house. And, and when you're at the potter's house, you're going to go see what I'm doing there. And, and the potter is working with the clay. And the pot and the and the the clay's not running up into a vessel. And the potter's house overlooked the valley of Ben Hinnom in, in Jeremiah 18. It's a deep valley and 
And, and the interesting thing is he looked at the potter, the, 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 pot, the clay was not running up into this vessel. It kept coming down, so he made it into a, a thick pot. And God said, hey, Jeremiah, did you learn your lesson? He's like, I, th I think so. And God says, I wanted to make Israel into this beautiful vessel for my glory, and, and the clay would not run up into my hands, and I, I couldn't mold it. I kept working it and putting it on, and it just wouldn't go, so I just made it into this crude pot. And he said, so I'm going to make them into this crude pot for my judgment and use, I'm going to use them one way or the other. And, and God's mercy and his grace, he says, look, if they repent, if they change, then, I'll, then I'll, I'll take them again and I'll make them into this sweet vessel. But as it is right now, I'm just going to make them in, into this, this bowl, this pot of, of my wrath. And I'm going to use them either way to show my glory and my power. And if they repent, I'll change them into this beautiful vase but because they're hardening their hearts towards me and they're running after the things of the world, then my justice, I'm going to show my justice and my power. And it's not without reason. that If, if any of us, as what, what he was experiencing, because he said, look, I'm going to, he, he sees Jeremiah, he shows Jeremiah, see the pot be outside and, and be baked by the heat of the sun. And the next day he goes and, and he says, look, they didn't repent. You see the pot in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Throw that pot and, and, and it breaks into pieces. And so that outside the potter's house, there's a bunch of pieces in, in the valley. And that valley was actually what was described as, as hell, being separated from God and, and in a place of utter destruction, where everything God had intended to be in right relationship would be broken forever. But God doesn't want us to be that broken vessel. He wants us to know him, and by knowing him, we'd be full of his love and his mercy and his glory. But if you reject him and continue to have that heart of stone, that heart is hardened towards him, then he'll, he'll allow the sun to shine on you and your heart would become even harder and you get what you want. Which is the most terrifying thought is no one's gonna walk into hell and be like, whoa, I took a wrong turn. They're gonna walk in and go, this is exactly what I want. I don't want God. I don't want the glory. I don't want the wonder and the awe of a God who chose me and made me, I am my own, and this is where I want to be. Which is terrifying, but God demonstrates his mercy time and time again, as we see in verse 22. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In the Greek, the what actually doesn't exist there. That was the ESV out of that to help us understand it and the readability, but it basically says, if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If God wants to do it, there's, there's no argument. You don't say, well, I don't think God should do that. It's, if God does this, that's what he wants to do. It's his prerogative. He's God. He gets to choose. And the wonder for us is we could sit back and say, well, I think I'm going to question God. Rather than look at that and, and, and interpret it and understand it, God, from the Old Testament to the New, he's made promises for you that he's kept and fulfilled in the New, that he made in the Old. And so we see Paul drawing on this going, hey, this isn't something new. And the Jews would know. They're like, oh, that's right. God wanted to make us into this vessel, but we rejected God. And so eventually the sun shone on our hard hearts, hardened us, and now we're these broken pots. 
But we don't have the right to tell God what to do. He chooses how and when and where he's going to display his glory and his, his mercy. And he wants you and I to be those vessels to display his glory. And he endures vessels of wrath. He doesn't just quickly fly into a rage and, oh, they disobeyed, I'm going to destroy him, which is where the enemy lies to us. Oh, you blew it today, God's going to destroy you, he hates you. You're right, he, I'm, the next lightning bolt, you know, it's funny being around people that don't know God. And they're like, oh, I said an F word around the pastor. I'm like, do you know God? Like, I'm here to help you know that he's merciful to you. He has something way more for you. And if you think God's going to kill you over an F word, like, man, you, got, you need to read the God of the Bible. Like, he's so patient and kind. And yes, his standard is holy and just. And he's, he's going to change your mouth. But that's the least of, he's going after your heart. He's going after your mind and your bank account and your, your schedule. He's going after all of it, man. The, the, the mouth might be the last thing to change, but God has something amazing for you. And his glory wants you to be a vessel to hold it. So he's working on you. And I think that's a good sign that you're aware of that you're not okay. And the interesting thing is that God, he says in verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, I love God. He's like, hey, you Jews think you're all that. You're not. Most Gentiles are actually going to come and be a part of my Israel, grafted in. I'm going to humble you. You think you're all that and you're proud? God humbles those who exalt themselves, and he exalts those who humble themselves. Last week we saw the most patient and wonder and beauty that helps us grasp this concept where, where Pharaoh, seven out of ten times, gets a phone call from God saying, hey, wake up. I'm the God who's the one true God. Let my people go. And Pharaoh keeps declining, keeps sending it to voicemail. And after the seventh time, which is the perfect number in the Bible and for the Jews, they would have known. That's God gave him the perfect amount of times to see and experience his love and his mercy, and he kept sending it to voicemail. See, the good news of the gospel is for all but only applies to those who answer the call. God's good news was for all people. He chose Abram, who was nobody, nothing, in Canaan, hey, come follow me. And he answered the call. All right, we're going to follow God. I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know where we're going to go. We've got to pack up the tent, which wasn't like a little Coleman six-person tent. It was like a massive tapestry with poles and sheeps and camels, mansion tent. And they had to hike that through with camels in the desert. Like it was a pretty sacrifice. Again, it wasn't about the word. It was his heart being transformed and going, okay, God, you have my life. May I magnify you with everything. And yes, my words will follow. But Pharaoh rejected him after seven times. So God said, all right, the sun's shining these last three times. I'm just going to help you get what you want. Hard in your heart. You want a hard hard, heart? I'm going to make it as hard as it can be. And then I'm going to get my glory and wonder and awe and just put the nail in the coffin as my people leave. We're going to, I'm going to drown you. And people read that like, oh man, see, God was like, all of a sudden got so angry and drowned Pharaoh. What a jerk God. No, he gave him seven times. And then he gave Pharaoh what he wanted. You want to chase after my people with chariots? You put your trust in horses and chariots and bunkers and store, storehouses? All right, have fun. Here's your weapons. How strong are they going to be against me? No. You can't compete. And yet we see our heart, our response is we laugh in the humor, but we laugh because it's, it's real about us. We're, we're just as corrupt and evil as Pharaoh. 
And I laugh because it's like, yeah, I've been arrogant and I've, I've declined that call too. And yet your mercy continued to come. And thankfully that fourth, fifth, seventh call maybe for you, you picked up and said, yeah, I'm listening now. I'm hurting. I can't do this on my own. I tried and I can't figure this out. I've, I've tried to fight against you and I'm laying down. I'm surrendering. And we realize that's the perfection that God demands and that God promises to accomplish in us when we surrender. Second, we see the prophecy, verse 25 through 29, that God extends his people. So we see introduced in 24, as he indeed says in Hosea, those were, who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. God is another, he loves illustrations, which is helpful for me because I'm so visual. I'm like, I read stuff in the Bible. I'm like, God, you got to help me. This is hard. And he's like, perfect. Here's a prophet, Hosea. He's going to marry a prostitute. I'm like, hold up, time out. Like, I was a part of church, had a lot of ministries. I was not allowed to be a part of the ministry to strippers. Like, that was, that was kind of the boundary they put in place. Like, here's one of your, your prophets is supposed to go marry one? Like, how does that work? And it's like, oh, that's, the Jews are so stiff-necked and stubborn. He's telling them, I want the gospel to go to the whole world. Which practically, yes, like, guys should not, probably be involved in the intimate details of ministering, reaching out to strippers to certain degrees. But the reality is that God's not a God who cares for our, what, what looks good. He's okay being scandalous and saying, look, I'm calling all people. And especially for, for the Jews who are thinking they're chosen and the gospels and the good news is only for them. God's like, no, it's actually supposed to go through you. My love's supposed to flow through you as a conduit. Stop trying to put an end cap on it and keep it for yourself. Let it go to the Gentiles and those who you think aren't good enough or don't deserve it because it's not based on your works or your ability to keep the law. It's based on my mercy. Do we know God as a God of mercy? Are we frustrated at God's choosing or are we delighting in his forgiveness? Are we forgiven and delighting in his mercy or are we frustrated by it? And we see it frustrated the Jews. He's like, wait, what? And even Hosea was like, time out, God. Like, I just want to make sure we're, we're having the same conversation. Like, you want me to marry Gomer, the prostitute? Yes, go marry her. Okay. She cheated. Yep, go buy her back. Okay. And that's exactly what God does for you and I. No matter what pain, what hurt we've done or has been done to us, God says, I'm right here. Just, just come to me. All who are weary and heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to give you the ability to forgive yourself and other people who've hurt you that you might have my mercy, have my glory, and be humbled that I could exalt you and lift you up. And, and the reality, the sad reality, is many Jews are excluded. Isaiah 10, 22 through 23 and 1, 9, where Isaiah goes and, and he's, he meets God in the heavens and has this amazing vision. The coal comes and, and touches his lips. He's like, whoa, whoa. Am I? I'm unworthy. I have unclean lips. And, and then God's like, who's going to go tell people about me? And he's like, dude, this is awesome. I'm going to go tell everyone about you. All the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah's all pumped. I'm going to tell him. What am I going to tell him? Go tell him that my wrath's going to... Okay, and who am I going to tell and how long? Tell them until there's no more. And they're not going to believe a word you say. It's the typical standard. Here, here's a prophet. Go tell him. Okay, sweet. Is anyone going to listen? No. Awesome. Sounds good. Like, it, people will read the Bible and they're like, oh, the prophets. No, the prophets endured so much. In Jeremiah, we looked at 18, 19, I kind of summarized for you. In 20, he's like, God, this is horrible. I just, I told them what you told me to tell them. They put me in stocks, beat me up, made fun of me. 
And I just have this burning in my heart to keep telling him your word, but I just keep getting beat up for it. Like, this is brutal. And God's like, I know, just keep going. And Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because no one ever listened to his message. And Isaiah, similarly, is like, just keep going. In chapter 6, God says, until all the people are gone, there will be a stump, a seed, a remnant, though. There's going to be a few people. Don't worry, I got it. You be faithful with the message I've given to you, and I'll take care of the numbers. We always want to see these massive numbers and big in growth. And interestingly, especially for the Jews, the nation is if, it says in 27, the nation of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Only a third of the Jews turn to Christ. Two-thirds of the Jews rebel and reject Christ. And we see that Paul's proving these promises that the Old Testament prophets proclaim to come true. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Verse 29, Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us the offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. If God did not preserve the remnant, every time Israel disobeyed and God rose up a nation for punishment to annihilate them, it's like, oh, everything's over. Yeah, it is, because you disobeyed, but God's got a remnant. He's still keeping his promise. Not because the Jews earned it or deserved it. You don't get God's mercy because you're that good or you came to church today. You get it because God says, look, I love you. You're like, why? He says, I love you. You're like, but why? He says, because I love you. That's the wonder of his mercy. Every time I read this, I'm always like, I know it's hard to think about election and, and God choosing, but what if we just had the posture of like, but I'm not worthy. He's like, I know, but I make you worthy. But because Jesus died on the cross in your place, you get my love now because I love you. You're like, but I need to do something. I need to earn it. And I'm the first one to go, yeah, it better be free because I have no chance. And if there's justice coming, then I'm not here. And the good thing is if justice is coming for you all, then you're not here either. Thankfully, God's not fair and he's a just God and God took justice for us so that we might be justified, that we might have his righteousness, that we could stand in right standing. That's what righteousness means. We can stand rightly before God. Not do right things, but that we can have that standing. And we'll never understand the New Testament fully if we don't get the old and the promises that were made. And we see that it's God who chose. In verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That it's righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why are so few Jews in Israel today focused on God, pursuing God, reflecting God, and trying to help other people know God? You see, the gospel went to the Gentiles, and it was a, a stumbling block that says in verse thirty. 33, as it's written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I don't know about, about you guys. I mostly wear sandals when it's not cold. And, and I'm cruising around. And, and uh, coming out of Templeton Market, I was distracted by something. I looked back. And the contractors who made the parking lot and sidewalk thought it was an amazing idea to leave a curb like six inches high going from the walking part to the other sidewalk, and you had to kind of traverse that. So I always kind of hopped over it and was laughing at that until I was distracted looking back, don't know why, in sandals, and then 
boom, I smacked it, split my big toe open, was like busted forever because it's your toes and I always was surfing and in and out and all that stuff. Sandals, never really took care of it, but I was like, ah, oh, that hurt. And it's a stumbling block. And that's where Jesus shows up. He's like, hey guys, I'm God. It's all free now. And the Jews are like, no way. There's no way. This is, I have 10 huge commands I have to obey. Like, there's no way you're giving this out for free. And then we made 603 others to help us obey the 10. So I'm at like 599. Like, you cannot just give it up now for free. And Jesus is like, dude, just believe. And Nicodemus is like, there's no way it's that easy. Yeah, just be reborn. The, what? That was not one of the 600 and something, like, how, where, where's that? And Jesus is like, it's me. I'm here. It's free. Just believe and be saved. It's a stumbling block for the Jews. Honestly, the Muslims have a way easier, like if you really want to earn it, go with Islam because you get to kill people if they don't believe in you. So you get to like rage monster on them. And seven tenants, you can do seven pillars. Like praying five times a day is a little inconvenient. You can work it in with your schedule. As long as you can afford a plane ticket to Mecca, you, you got it. You could do that. The Jews have 603 commands plus the 10 that are huge to obey, to be perfect. You can't do that. That's, but Jesus makes it even harder at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, look, you, you've heard it said don't murder someone. And the moral laws of Islam and Judaism, they, they say that too. But but Jesus says if you've called someone a fool, that's murdering. If you, if you have anger towards them and you've called them a fool, you've murdered them in your heart. So you're a murderer. And if that's not enough, they're like, oh, there's no chance with this Jesus. I can't earn it. He says if you've looked at a woman lustfully, then you've committed adultery with her in your heart. It's over. There's no hope with Jesus. And I've heard, I've, it's amazing, I've heard people walk up to me and say, I can't. I don't like what you taught. I, I can't do it. I'm like, exactly. You can't be holy as I'm holy, but God demands you to be holy as I'm holy, which only leaves one reasonable explanation. Jesus has to die in our place, and he has to declare you righteous because he walked out of the grave and said, your life is hidden with me. You've died with Christ, and now you've been raised with Christ. So you have a right standing before God, not because of anything you've done, anything you will do. It's all because of what he's already done for you. That's the gospel. That's our only hope. And that's what he's saying here. Look, you can't do it on your own. When Jesus walks up to the woman at the well, verse 30, she wasn't pursuing righteousness. She had some religious background. Maybe she went to a Good News Club or a VBS or a Wana's and had some Bible stories bouncing around. And Well, I got to go to that mountain to worship, but I got to get a jet to go to Mecca and do that thing. And I got to do this. And Jesus is like, if you knew who you were talking to, man, I'd hook you up with some water. When you drank of it, you'd never thirst again. She's like, what? And then she went, he told her everything she'd done wrong. You've been to so many guys. The guy you're with now is not even your husband. God's mercy. She wasn't like, this is lame. Why'd you choose me? The disciples said that. The disciples were like, hold up, time out. You can't talk to women. And this, look at Jesus. I have all these women on my Facebook page. They're, they have Bible degrees. They've been to synagogue. You can maybe talk to, you do not want to talk to her. Like she's not. And he's like, no, I, that's exactly who I came for. It's the bad people that love mercy. The self-righteous religious people who come to church and read, they're like, I don't, I just, you know, I kind of want to get God and the blessings of God, but I don't really want his mercy. But do you, then do you know God? Do we delight? I, I've been convicted. I'm like, man, if I knew God and his mercy and how he, 
I'm in awe that he would show me mercy to put his glory in me that I could go and display that love and glory to the world and bring them to Jesus. So we see the enemy wants us distracted. He wants us to think about the hard things, the hurtful things that have come against us and hurt us to keep us from knowing God's love and having that relationship. But as I want to close and think about the person, as we we were talking about the person, the stumbling block, he ends in verse 1 of 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they don't submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. God doesn't need all the Jews. He doesn't need you and me, but he's looking for those who turn to him and humble themselves and repent. I've shared this before, but you know, in Acts 2, when, when Peter's talking about God calling all people to himself to believe, and God's going to give him his Holy Spirit. It's the perfecting work is the Holy Spirit. And then there's prophecy. God's going to call people who aren't his people to be his people. And then we see it all through the person and work of Jesus. And I remember being young and being like, dude, I'm going to be in the ranks with Spurgeon and all these famous pastors. I'm going to go after it hard, and I'm going to earn it. I'm going to work and we were in L.A. on Skid Row, and it was dirty, and it was filthy, and we were doing ministry, and, and there was this thing called homeless karaoke. And so there I was, and, and I, it's not just because I'm white, but I, I've not been given the gift of dancing or, or rhythm. And so I'm sitting there, and, and I'm like kind of judgmental, a little self-righteous, like, dude, these kids are all dancing, having fun. This isn't the gospel ministry. This isn't reconciliation. You guys homeless people, and they need Jesus. Like, what are we doing here? And this guy sits next to me, and we strike up conversation, and he's like, oh, yeah, Central Coast. And they just, it was this weird supernatural thing where he's like, oh, you know, there's a rich, and he just goes right into story. And he says, there's a rich ruler who, like a rich business owner who owns a vineyard up in Paso Robles. And he's going to church, and, and there's, a, there's a homeless guy you know, he's like a black guy like me, walks into church. And, and the rich vineyard owner is standing up, and, and he's on the other side of the worship center from the church. And he's like, I'm glad I'm wealthy, and I have a wife and kids, and I do good things, and I help people. And I'm not like that horrible homeless guy over there. And, and, and the homeless guy's on his knees, pounding his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a horrible sinner. And he's like, the guy went home justified. And right in God's sight. The homeless guy did. And, and the wealthy vineyard owner went home in his sin. And he told me that, and I was like, I, I think I got fully rebuked right now. Like, I think that was, and I was just in awe. And I went to my youth pastor, and I'm like, I just got called out. Like, I, I didn't realize, but I was, I was tripping, trying to earn, trying to, I lowered Jesus' righteousness. In my mind, I thought I could compete with Jesus. I was like, this is not, Jesus isn't about having fun with homeless people right now. We gotta like save them. We gotta preach sin, repent, we gotta rebuke. And Jesus is like, no, we can, we can, we can have fun. Listen to this guy. He's here and he's doing work among the homeless and I think I have a different way. And so as the communion elements are passed out, may we not be arrogant enough like the Jews 
to lower the righteousness, to lower the sovereignty of God, that we might raise up and try and compete and say, this is my way. This is a way where I can earn. And this is using everything God's given me or God, I'm gonna, I want the gifts. I want this to, to show God how good I am that I can earn my way. But, but may we, as, as John the Baptist said, may I decrease that you would increase. And even as the disciples got on, like, don't talk to her. Maybe we go, wow, look it. God saved her. That's awesome. As she ran into town and was like, guys, I met the one, the Messiah. He's told me everything I've done wrong. And they're like, yeah, we know all this stuff. Who is he? I want to go talk to him. And they all came to Jesus. When we know God, when we're not frustrated by him, but we're forgiven by him, and we delight in him, then we spend our lives making his name known. And it's evident to those around us that we're no longer frustrated, tripping over, trying to earn, trying to look good. We're humbly broken, saying, man, I just want to magnify you, God. You've done a great and wonderful work in me. I don't know how, but you wanted to make me this amazing vessel. I was this pot, but I've repented. I've turned to you. I realized I was in sin, and you're my Savior. And now we can go and help people find Jesus. And those that find Jesus find life. And so once we know that we have life in him, and it's not by anything we've done or going to do, or maybe one day we're able, no, it's by what he's already done for you. And may we cling to that knowledge and be people who are forgiven and are easily and quick to forgive others when we've, done, when we've been wronged. That we would find hope and healing at the cross. And the amazing thing is, you never know who God's going to use you to encourage. You never know who God's going to use you to bring the hope of the gospel. We talk about this blessed method, beginning in prayer, listening to people, eating, serving one another. And that's always a tricky one for me, which I always ask people for help. And I'm like, when that, when's that going to happen? And then share the gospel. When I got to, to just jump right to the serve one another and then share the gospel this week, when I had a repair guy come to my house to serve me and fix my dryer, could have been 10 things. I'm like, I'm busy, fused is all it was, and we're talking about stuff, and he's like, oh, you're a pastor. I knew it! And I was like, uh-oh, hopefully it's good. Like, there was something different about you. I was like, good. It was God's work in me that you saw. He's like, yeah, it's great. And I was like, hey, we have people that need stuff like this. Can I, you're a legit guy. Can I call? He's like, yeah, I take care of people, single moms, widows, people that need help. Like, I'd love to take care of them. I'm like, that's awesome. We got to, to encourage one another. Neither one of us deserved it, earned it. By the world standards, we're not anything, but we want to help people who are in need because the one who made us came and helped us know his love because forgiven people help people find forgiveness and find life in him. So I'm going to leave you with the elements and I'll come back up and close this. But let's close in prayer now. Lord, we thank you for your love, your mercy. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We're grateful for you moving, running, sometimes tackling us to reveal your mercy for us, towards us. As it frustrates those who are trying to earn it, we pray that we would humble ourselves, receive your gifts, receive your spirit, receive your salvation that you have planned for us beforehand, that we would walk in your ways all of our days for your glory and our good. We pray for those who are hearing this for the first time and wanting new life, wanting to find you, that they would find life and have peace or forgiveness or healing from hurts. Lord, we pray you'd bring those sad things and make them untrue and bring the truth 
of who you are into their life. As they repent, turn from their sin, turn to you, confess that they're a sinner in need of your Savior and you're that Savior, that we would walk with them, encourage them, and rejoicing with them as they find life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.